Chapter Three, Book One of Rookwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Paul Curran. Rookwood by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book One, Chapter Three, The Park. Brian. Ralph, hearest thou any stirring? Ralph. I heard one speak here, hard by, in the hollow. Peace, master, speak low. Nouns. If I do not hear a bow go off, and the book bray, I never heard deer in my life. Brian. Stand, or I'll shoot. Sir Arthur. Who's there? Brian. I am the keeper, and do charge you stand. You have stolen my deer. Merry Devil of Edmonton. Luke's first impulse had been to free himself from the restraint imposed by his grandsire's society. He longed to commune with himself. Leaping the small boundary wall, which defended the churchyard from a deep green lane, he hurried along in a direction contrary to that taken by the sexton, making the best of his way until he arrived at a gap in the high-banked hazel hedge which overhung the road. Heedless of the impediments thrown in his way by the undergrowth of a rough ring fence, he struck through the opening that presented itself, and climbing over the moss-grown paling, trod presently upon the elastic sward of Rookwood Park. A few minutes' rapid walking brought him to the summit of a rising ground crowned with aged oaks, and, as he passed beneath their broad shadows, his troubled spirit, soothed by the quietude of the scene, in part resumed its serenity. Luke yielded to the gentle influence of the time and hour. The stillness of the spot allayed the irritation of his frame, and the dewy chillness cooled the fever of his brow. Leaning for support against the gnarled trunk of one of the trees, he gave himself up to contemplation. The events of the last hour, of his whole existence, passed in rapid review before him. The thought of the wayward vagabond life he had led, of the wild adventures of his youth, of all that he had been, of all that he had done, of all he had endured, crowded his mind, and then, like the passing of a cloud flitting across the autumnal moon, and occasionally obscuring the smiling landscape before him, his soul was shadowed by the remembrance of the awful revelations of the last hour, and the fearful knowledge he had acquired of his mother's fate, of his father's guilt. The eminence on which he stood was one of the highest points of the park, and commanded a view of the hall, which might be a quarter of a mile distant, discernible through a broken vista of trees, its whitened walls glimmering in the moonlight, and its tall chimney spiring far from out the round masses of the wood in which it lay embosomed. The ground gradually sloped in that direction, occasionally rising into swells, studded with magnificent timber, dipping into smooth dells, or stretching out into level glades, until it suddenly sank into a deep declivity that formed an effectual division, without the intervention of a haw-haw or other barrier, between the chase and the home park. A slender stream strayed through this ravine, having found its way thither from a small reservoir, hidden in the higher plantations to the left, and further on in the open ground, and in a line with the hall, though, of course, much below the level of the building, 
assisted by many local springs, and restrained by a variety of natural and artificial embankments, this brook spread out into an expansive sheet of water. Crossed by a rustic bridge, the only communication between the parks, the pool found its outlet into the meads below, and even at that distance, and at that still hour, you might almost catch the sound of the brawling waters as they dashed down the weir in a foaming cascade. While far away, in the spreading valley, the serpentine meanderings of the slender current might be traced, glittering like silvery threads in the moonshine. The mild beams of the Queen of Night, then in her meridian, trembled upon the topmost branches of the tall timber, quivering like diamond spray upon the outer foliage, and penetrating through the interstices of the trees, fell upon the light wreaths of vapour then beginning to rise from the surface of the pool, steeping them in misty splendour, and lending to this part of the picture a character of dreamy and unearthly beauty. All else was in unison. No sound interrupted the silence of Luke's solitude, except the hooting of a large grey owl that, scared at his approach, or in search of prey, winged its spectral flight in continuous and mazy circles round his head, uttering at each wheel its startling whoop, or a deep, distant bay that ever and anon boomed upon the ear, proceeding from a pack of hounds kennelled in a shed adjoining the pool before mentioned, but which was shrouded from view by the rising mist. No living objects presented themselves, save a herd of deer, crouched in a covert of brown fern beneath the shadow of a few stunted trees, immediately below the point of land on which Luke stood, and although their branching antlers could scarcely be detected from the ramifications of the wood itself, they escaped not his practised ken. "'How often,' murmured Luke, "'in years gone by have I traversed these moonlit glades.' and wandered amid these woodlands on nights as heavenly as this. Aye, and to some purpose, as yon thinned herd might testify, every dingle, every dell, every rising brow, every bosky vale and shelving covert, have been as familiar to my track as to that of the fleetest and freest of their number. Scarce a tree amidst the thickest of yon outstretching forests with which I cannot claim acquaintance, "'Tis long since I have seen them, by heavens, tis beautiful, and is all my own. "'Can I forget that it was here I first emancipated myself from thraldom? "'Can I forget the boundless feeling of delight that danced within my veins "'when I first threw off the yoke of servitude, and roved, unshackled, unrestrained, amidst these woods? "'The wild, intoxicating bliss still tingles to my heart, and they are all my own, my own.' Softly. What have we there? Luke's attention was arrested by an object, which could not fail to interest him, sportsman as he was. A snorting bray was heard, and a lordly stag stalked slowly and majestically from out the copse. Luke watched the actions of the noble animal with great interest, drawing back into the shade. A hundred yards or thereabouts might be between him and the buck. It was within range of ball. Luke mechanically grasped his gun, yet his hand had scarcely raised the piece halfway to his shoulder when he dropped it again to its rest. "'What am I about to do?' he mentally ejaculated. "'Why, 
For mere pastime should I take away yon noble creature's life, when his carcass would be utterly useless to me. Yet such is the force of habit, that I can scarce resist the impulse that tempted me to fire. And I have known the time, and that not long since, when I should have shown no such self-control. Unconscious of the danger it had escaped, the animal moved forward with the same stately step. Suddenly it stopped, with ears pricked, as if some sound had smote them. At that instant the click of a gunlock was heard, at a little distance to the right, the piece had missed fire. An instantaneous report from another gun succeeded, and, with a bound high in the air, the buck fell upon his back, struggling in the agonies of death. Luke had at once divined the cause. He was aware that poachers were at hand. He fancied that he knew the parties, nor was he deceived in his conjecture. Two figures issued instantly from a covert on the right, and making to the spot, the first who reached it put an end to the animal's struggles by plunging a knife into its throat. The affrighted herd took to their heels, and were seen darting swiftly down the chase. One of the twain, meantime, was occupied in feeling for the deer's fat, when he was approached by the other, who pointed in the direction of the house. The former raised himself from his kneeling posture, and both appeared to listen attentively. Luke fancied he heard a slight sound in the distance. Whatever the noise proceeded from, it was evident that the deer-stealers were alarmed. They laid hold of the book, and, dragging it along, concealed the carcass among the tall fern. They then retreated, halting for an instant to deliberate within a few yards of Luke, who was concealed from their view by the trunk of the tree, behind which he had ensconced his person. They were so near that he lost not a word of their muttered conference. "'The game's spoiled this time, Rod Rust, anyhow,' growled one, in an angry tone. "'The hawks are upon us, and we must leave this brave buck to take care of himself. "'Curse him! Who'd have thought of Hugh Badger's quitting his bed to-night? "'Respect for his late master might have kept him quiet the night before the funeral. "'But look out, lad! Dost see him? "'Aye!' "'Thanks to old Oliver, yonder they are,' returned the other. "'One, two, three, and a muzzle bowser to boot. "'There's Hugh at the lead on em. "'Shall we stand and show fight? "'I've half a mind for it.' "'No, no,' replied the first speaker. "'That will never do, Rob, no fighting. "'Why run the risk of being grabbed for a haunch of venison? "'Had Luke Bradley or Jack Palmer been with us, "'it might have been another affair. "'As it is, it won't pay. "'Besides, we have that to-do at the hall to-morrow night, that may make men of us for the rest of our natural lives. We've pledged ourselves to Jack Palmer, and we can't be off in honour. It won't do to be snabbed in the nick of it. So let's make for the prad in the lane. Keep in the shade as much as you can. Come along, my hearty. And away the two worthies scampered down the hillside. Shall I follow? thought Luke, and run the risk of falling into the keeper's hand, just at this crisis too, no. But if I am found here, I shall be taken for one of the gang. Something must be done. Ah, devil take them. Here they are already. Further time was not allowed him for reflection. A hoarse baying was heard, followed by a loud cry from the keepers. The dog had scented out the game, and, as secrecy was no longer necessary, his muzzle had been removed. To rush forth now was certain betrayal. To remain was almost equally assured detection, and, 
doubting whether he should obtain credence if he delivered himself over in that garb and armed, Luke at once rejected the idea. Then it flashed across his recollection that his gun had remained unloaded, and he applied himself eagerly to repair this negligence, when he heard the dog in full cry, making swiftly in his direction. He threw himself upon the ground where the fern was thickest, but this seemed insufficient to baffle the sagacity of the hound. The animal had got his scent, and was baying close at hand. The keepers were drawing nigh. Luke gave himself up for lost. The dog, however, stopped where the two poachers had halted, and was there completely at fault. Snuffing the ground, he bayed, wheeled around, and then set off with renewed barking upon their track. Hugh Badger and his comrades loitered an instant in the same place, looked warily around, and then, as Luke conjectured, followed the course taken by the hound. Swift as thought, Luke rose, and keeping as much as possible under the cover of the trees, started in a cross line for the lane. Rapid as was his flight, it was not without a witness. One of the keeper's assistants, who had lagged behind, gave the view halloo in a loud voice. Luke pressed forward with redoubled energy, endeavouring to gain the shelter of the plantation, and this he could readily have accomplished had no impediment been in his way. But his rage and vexation were boundless when he heard the keeper's cry echoed by shouts immediately below him, and the tongue of the hound resounding in the hollow. He turned sharply round, steering a middle course and still aiming at the fence. It was evident, from the cheers of his pursuers, that he was in full view, and he heard them encouraging and directing the dog. Luke had gained the park railings, along which he rushed, in the vain quest of some practicable point of egress, for the fence was higher in this part of the park than elsewhere, owing to the inequality of the ground. He had cast away his gun as useless, but even without that encumbrance he dared not hazard the delay of climbing the palings. At this juncture a deep breathing was heard close behind him. He threw a glance over his shoulder. Within a few yards was the ferocious bloodhound, with whose savage nature Luke was well acquainted. The breed some of which he had already seen, having been maintained at the hall ever since the days of grim old Sir Ranulph. The eyes of the hound were glaring, blood red. His tongue was hanging out, and a row of keen white fangs was displayed like the teeth of a shark. There was a growl, a leap, and the dog was close upon him. Luke's courage was doubled, but his heart failed him as he heard the roar of the remorseless brute, and felt that he could not avoid an encounter with the animal. His resolution was instantly taken. He stopped short with such suddenness that the dog, when in the act of springing, flew past him with great violence, and the time, momentary as it was, occupied by the animal in recovering himself, enabled Luke to drop on his knee, and to place one arm, like a buckler, before his face, while he held the other in readiness to grapple his adversary. Uttering a fierce yell, the hound returned to the charge, darting at Luke, who received the assault without flinching, and in spite of a severe laceration of the arm, he seized his foe by the throat, and hurling him upon the ground, jumped with all his force upon his belly. There was a yell of agony, the contest was ended, and Luke was at liberty to pursue his flight unmolested. Brief as had been the interval required for this combat, it had been sufficient to bring the pursuers within sight of the fugitive. Hugh Badger, who from the acclivity had witnessed the fate of his favourite, 
with a loud oath, discharged the contents of his gun at the head of its destroyer. It was fortunate for Luke that at this instant he stumbled over the root of a tree. The shot rattled in the leaves as he fell, and the keeper, concluding that he had at least winged his bird, descended more leisurely towards him. As he lay upon the ground, Luke felt that he was wounded, whether by the teeth of the dog, from a stray shot, or from bruises inflicted by the fall he could not determine. But, smarting with pain, he resolved to wreak his vengeance upon the first person who approached him. He vowed not to be taken with life, to strangle any who should lay hands upon him, and at that moment he felt a pressure at his breast. It was the dead hand of his mother. Luke shuddered. The fire of revenge was quenched. He mentally cancelled his rash oath, yet he could not bring himself to surrender at discretion and without further effort. The keeper and his assistants were approaching the spot where he lay and searching for his body. Hugh Badger was foremost and within a yard of him. "'Confound the rascal!' cried Hugh. "'He's not half killed. He seems to breathe.' The words were scarcely out of his mouth ere the speaker was dashed backwards and lay sprawling upon the sod. Suddenly and unexpectedly, as an Indian chief might rush upon his foes, Luke arose, dashing himself with great violence against Hugh, who happened to stand in his way, and before the startled assistants, who were either too much taken by surprise, or unwilling to draw the trigger, could in any way lay hands upon him. Exerting all the remarkable activity which he possessed, he caught hold of a projecting branch of a tree, and swung himself at a single bound fairly over the paling. Hugh Badger was shortly on his legs, swearing lustily at his defeat, directing his men to skirt alongside the fence, and make for a particular part of the plantation which he named, and snatching a loaded fowling-piece from one of them, he clambered over the pales, and guided by the crashing branches, and other sounds conveyed to his quick ear, he was speedily upon Luke's track. The plantation through which the chase now took place was not, as might be supposed, a continuation of the ring fence which Luke had originally crossed on his entrance into the park, though girded by the same line of paling, but, in reality, a close pheasant preserve, occupying the banks of a ravine, which, after a deep and tortuous course, terminated it in the declivity heretofore described as forming the park boundary. Luke plunged into the heart of this defile, fighting his way onwards in the direction of the brook, his progress was impeded by a thick undergrowth of briar and other matted vegetation, as well as by the entanglements thrown in his way by the taller bushes of thorn and hazel, the entwined and elastic branches of which, in their recoil, galled and fretted him by inflicting smart blows on his face and hands. This was a hardship he usually little regarded, but, upon the present occasion, it had the effect, by irritating his temper, of increasing the thirst of vengeance raging in his bosom. Through the depths of the ravine welled the shadow stream before alluded to, and Hugh Badger had no sooner reached its sedgy margin than he lost all trace of the fugitive. He looked cautiously round, listened intently, and inclined his ear to catch the faintest echo. All was still. Not a branch shook, not a leaf rustled. Hugh looked aghast. He had made sure of getting a glimpse, and perhaps a stray shot at the poaching rascal, as he termed him, in the open space which he was sure the fellow was aiming to reach, and now, all at once, he had disappeared like a will-o'-the-wisp or a boggart of the clough. However, he could not be far off, 
and Hugh endeavoured to obtain some clue to guide him in his quest. He was not long in detecting recent marks deeply indented in the mud on the opposite bank. Hugh leapt thither at once. Further on, some rushes were trodden down, and there were other indications of the course the fugitive had taken. "'Hark! Forward!' shouted Hugh, in the joy of his heart at this discovery, and, like a well-trained dog, he followed up with alacrity the scent he had opened. The brook presented still fewer impediments to expedition than the thick copse, and the keeper pursued the wanderings of the petty current, occasionally splashing into the stream. Here and there the print of a foot on the soil satisfied him he was on the right path. At length he became aware from the crumbling soil that the object of his pursuit had scaled the bank, and he forthwith moderated his pace. Halting, he perceived what he took to be a face peeping at him from behind a knot of alders that overhung the steep and shelving bank immediately above him. His gun was instantly at his shoulder. "'Come down, you infernal, deer-stealing scoundrel!' cried Hugh. "'Or I'll blow you to shivers!' No answer was returned. Expostulation was vain, and, fearful of placing himself at a disadvantage if he attempted to scale the bank, Hugh fired without further parley. The sharp discharge rolled in echoes down the ravine, and the pheasant, scared by the sound, answered the challenge from a neighbouring tree. Hugh was an unerring marksman, and on this occasion his aim had been steadily taken. The result was not precisely such as he had anticipated. A fur cap, shaken by the shot from the bough on which it hung, came rolling down the bank, proclaiming the ruse that had been practised upon the keeper. Little time was allowed for reflection. Before he could reload, he felt himself collared by the iron arm of Luke. Hugh Badger was a man of great personal strength, square-set, bandy-legged, with a prodigious width of chest and a frame like Hercules, and, energetic as was Luke's assault, he maintained his ground without flinching. The struggle was desperate. Luke was of slighter proportion, though exceeding the keeper in stature by the head and shoulders, this superiority availed him little. It was rather a disadvantage in the conflict that ensued. The grip fastened upon Hugh's throat was like that of a clenched vice, but Luke might as well have grappled the neck of a bull as that of the stalwart keeper. Defending himself with his hobnail boots, with which he inflicted several severe blows upon Luke's shins, and struggling vehemently, Hugh succeeded in extricating himself from his throttling grasp. Then he closed with his foe, and they were locked together, like a couple of bears at play, straining, tugging, and practising every slight and stratagem coming within the scope of feet, knees, and thighs, now tripping, now jerking, now advancing, now retreating, they continued the strife, but all with doubtful result. Victory, at length, seemed to declare itself in favour of the sturdy keeper. Aware of his opponent's strength, it was Luke's chief endeavour to keep his lower limbs disengaged, and to trust more to skill than force for ultimate success. To prevent this was Hugh's grand object. Guarding himself against every feint, he ultimately succeeded in firmly grappling his agile assistant. Luke's spine was almost broken by the shock, when he suddenly gave way, and, without losing his balance, drew his adversary forward, kicking his right leg from under him. With a crash like that of an uprooted oak, Hugh fell, with his foe upon him into the bed of the rivulet. Not a word had been spoken during the conflict. A convulsive groan burst from Hugh's hardy breast. 
His hand sought his girdle, but in vain. His knife was gone. Gazing upwards, his dancing vision encountered the glimmer of the blade. The weapon had dropped from its case in the fall. Luke brandished it before his eyes. "'Villain!' gasped Hugh, ineffectually struggling to free himself. "'You will not murder me!' And his efforts to release himself became desperate. "'No,' answered Luke, flinging the uplifted knife into the brook. "'I will not do that, though thou hast twice aimed at my life to-night. But I will silence thee at all events.' Saying which, he dealt the keeper a blow on the head that terminated all further resistance on his part. Leaving the inert mass to choke up the current, with whose waters the blood, oozing from the wound, began to commingle, Luke prepared to depart. His perils were not yet past. Guided by the firing, the report of which alarmed them, the keeper's assistants hastened in the direction of the sound, presenting themselves directly in the path Luke was about to take. He had either to retrace his steps, or face a double enemy. His election was made at once. He turned and fled. For an instant the men tarried with their bleeding companion. They then dragged him from the brook, and with loud oaths followed in pursuit. Threading for a second time the bosky labyrinth, Luke sought the source of the stream. This was precisely the course his enemies would have desired him to pursue, and when they beheld him take it, they felt confident of his capture. The sides of the hollow became more and more abrupt as they advanced, though they were less covered with brushwood. The fugitive made no attempt to climb the bank, but still pressed forward. The road was tortuous, and wound round a jutting point of rock. Now he was a fair mark. No, he had swept swiftly by and was out of sight before a gun could be raised. They reached the same point. He was still before them, but his race was nearly run. Steep, slippery rocks shelving down to the edges of a small deep pool of water, the source of the stream, formed apparently insurmountable barrier in that direction. Rooted, heaven knows how, in some reft or fissure of the rock, grew a wild ash, throwing out a few boughs over the solitary pool. This was all the support Luke could hope for, should he attempt to scale the rock. The rock was sheer, the pool deep, yet still he hurried on. He reached the muddy embankment, mounted its sides, and seemed to hesitate, the keepers were now within a hundred yards of him. Both guns were discharged, and, sudden as the reports, with a dead, splashless plunge, like a diving otter, the fugitive dropped into the water. The pursuers were at the brink. They gazed into the pool. A few bubbles floated upon its surface and burst. The water was slightly discoloured with sand. No ruddier stain crimsoned the tide. No figure rested on the naked rock. No hand clung to the motionless tree. "'Devil take the rascal!' growled one. "'I hope he hadn't escaped us after all.' "'No, no, he be fast enough, never fear,' rejoined the other. "'Sticking like a snig at the bottom of the pond, and, dang him, he deserves it, for he slipped out of our fingers like a snig often enough to eat. But come, let's be stumping, and give poor Hugh Badger a helping hand.' whereupon they returned to the assistance of the wounded and discomfited keeper. End of chapter 3, book 1